It's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. So glad you guys are tuning in once again to Everyone Talks to Liz. And speaking of uh, the word everyone, okay, everyone has a favorite movie. Okay. Mine happens to be All the President's Men about the Washington Post reporters Bob Woodward and Carl Bernstein, who cracked open the Watergate scandal. It's my all time fave because when I saw it as a kid, it really inspired me to become a journalist, right? It's so dramatic. But if I had to say what my favorite genre of films is, it's definitely underdog sports movies. So like Miracle on Ice about the 1980 U.S. men's Olympic hockey team or or Breaking Away or The Longest Yard. But number one in that category has got to be Rudy. I know a lot of you guys must have seen this because it shows, I don't know, like 85,000 times on every cable channel. But Rudy Rudiger, right? The kid who was a walk-on at Notre Dame, you know, there's a famous speech where somebody says to him, you're five feet, nothing, a hundred, nothing. You hardly got a speck of athletic ability. You hung in with the best college football team in the land for two years. And the thing about Rudy, you guys, was that he constantly failed until he finally succeeded. I mean, that is the makeup of a winner, somebody who chases their dream and never gives up. My guest today has chased several dreams and caught them right? He's made them reality. Ironically, one of his dreams was to be a movie producer and he ended up producing, yes, you guessed it, Rudy. But since then, because the movie came out in like 1993, he keeps bolting on new dreams and his latest has nothing to do with the movie business, but it's got a lot of drama and he is crushing it in that totally different realm of health and wellness, So what is his secret to these multiple successes? Let's ask him. I'm thrilled to welcome Rob Freed, CEO of health and wellness company, Chromadex, and of course, producer of Rudy and and Godzilla. (laughs) Rob, you're insane. I love this. Well, thank you. That's quite an introduction. My pleasure. It's much deserved. I mean, there aren't many people who manage to really after many tries, hit a major home run in one industry that's extraordinarily competitive, right? But then to become the CEO in a completely different one. So I want to get to how you became this person who was able to do things like that. Um, First, I guess we talk about your career in the film industry, but I'd love to find out when you first had that dream. Were you a kid? Did you love movies? When did you say to yourself, I've got to become somebody in the industry? I never had a moment where I wanted to become somebody in the industry. Really? That was probably my greatest advantage when I was in the movie business is that I sort of stumbled into it. I graduated from business school and Columbia Pictures was recruiting MBAs. They were changing the way they were thinking and I interviewed for the job and got the job. And basically we were breaking everything down to cash. This is the 1980s when the industry was pivoting from being Uh, an industry about people who had their finger on the pulse, instinctive to being analytical. The introduction of MBAs and analytical thinking and DVDs and HBO and the calculus of movie distribution. And I was part of that calculus. And it was very 
mysterious and scary to all the existing players in the Hollywood industry. So I was able to use that to meet lots of people. And as you know, success in the movie business is very much about people. People and great stories, right? I mean. Yeah. But most of the people that are very, very successful in the motion picture industry, indeed the television industry as well, their great strength is people skills. Would you have ever thought or described yourself as the creative type? Yes, I would say that even though I've I've been an entrepreneur in most of my business, I think there's a lot of creativity in entrepreneurship. 100%, 100%. But so you get to Columbia Pictures and you're the MBA, which I'm sure some of the creative types looked at as the bean counter. Uh, But you also realize probably that there was real opportunity in actually grabbing onto some of these stories and figuring out how to tell those stories. Where did you find that bridge and how did that come about? Well, initially I was part of this team, as I said, that was using uh, computers to break down things down to cash and create forecasts. And that was very intimidating and new for the motion picture and industry uh, entertainment industry. And then we started doing these models about which types of films were more successful, the calculus of, film production and film distribution. So there was a whole mystique around what it is that we were doing. Then the New York Times, 1988 or something, wrote an article about the class of MBAs that are entering Hollywood. And I was in that article and that really elevated my profile. And and then the agents and, and, and producers wanted to get to know me and I was able to I was sort of always interested in uh, entrepreneurship and building something in earlier stage enterprises. In the entertainment industry, the most fragmented a component of the industry is producing. So it was the pr- production, which is a very fragmented entrepreneurial segment of the industry, as opposed to large monolithic conglomerates that are doing deals with one another. So I gravitated towards that and the idea of developing and financing. And I produced, I, I went into production and the films that I worked on just were hits. It, you know, it's very serendipitous, very lucky, but Hoosiers was the first and Throw Mama from the Train and and then a movie called Robocop and Mississippi Burning and then one called Colors. And before you know it, I had an image as somebody who was producing hits. And uh, I ended up being working for a woman named Dawn Steele, her head of production at Columbia Pictures. And so it all happened very rapidly and very, very quickly. Uh, and then uh, began to learn the actual, I took a course at UCLA on actual physical production and learned to write uh, and learned to produce and then really uh, invested myself in, in, in learning how to make film, how to actually make quality films. And one thing led to another. Did your folks come from this industry or anything like it? Tell me about your childhood and, and what that was like. And if there's any kind of connection whatsoever. No, my father was a Holocaust survivor from Austria, and he uh, moved to the Bronx where he met my mother, and uh, they lived in the Bronx. I was born there and then raised up in Westchester County, a town called Ardsley, and they loved America, very much appreciated the freedom of America and the opportunity to do whatever you want. He grew up in a different type of environment. So we grew up with this idea that you could do anything and that we lived in this place that afforded the opportunity if you just worked hard and you focused on it, some wonderful things could happen. So that was indoctrinated in in me and still is, and hopefully is in in my kids as well. Was there anything that you learned from your dad, who, as you said, was a Holocaust survivor that gave you 
sort of a point on the horizon of my gosh, we are so fortunate. I'll never go up against something that he did have to deal with that. What's my excuse kind of thing. Cause that's, that's sort of the message that we love to, to give here. Let's, let's just cut to the chase people fight hard for what you want. Yes. I mean, my father, when he passed away, we found that he had a packed bag in his, uh, in his closet that had been there for, for decades. He, in other words, he had the idea that at any moment something bad could happen and you could have to be on the run. Uh, and he just loved the idea that anyone could start a business and any his kids could go to college and learn, get educated. And if you worked hard that, and you kept trying and trying and trying and trying that one day you get lucky. And, you know, you asked me before, how does one get to be successful in one business and then success, successful in another business? The answer is lots and lots of failure in between. hundred percent. That's exactly, exactly true. And what I hear from almost all of our entrepreneurs who say, just accept it and absorb it. And, and it's the way it's supposed to be. Failure is actually like working out a muscle and you tear, make tiny little tears in the muscle and then you grow back stronger. It's so easy once you understand that that's okay to fail. In fact, you want to welcome it, right? I completely agree that it's okay to fail, but the corollary to that is it's not so great to succeed. I mean, success is a good thing, but it isn't really why we're here. We're here to enjoy and be happy and get the most out of life that we can possibly get. And if a component of that is being productive or making money or whatever it is that our particular goal is, that's a good thing. But it isn't the only thing. Well, you, you actually worked for the man, for the big corporation of Columbia Pictures, but then you you struck out on your own because obviously you had that entrepreneurial spirit. Tell me how a movie like Rudy came about. As I said, I had worked on Hoosiers Yes. as a young executive, as a studio executive. So when I became a producer, the writer and the director, who were obviously very, very deeply close friends of mine, uh, we went out for dinner and we said, let's um, come up with another project. And the writer said, there's this guy who's been pounding me forever. In fact, he's been knocking on my door. He actually flew out to Los Angeles and he got my address from the post office and he's been knocking on my door and he's really irritating. But... Maybe he has a story. <laughs> Squeaky wheel. Right. And I heard this guy's story and thought, oh, my God, this isn't just a story. This, is, this could be as good, if not better, than Hoosiers. We have to do this story. And we did. We bought it. Still, the, we're all extremely close to this day, Rudy and the writer and director of the film. And I personally related to it, not just because I'm a very, very big sports fan. I mean, I worked on many sports films early in my career, Hoosiers, Bull Durham, Eight Men Out, Rudy, many. But also this particular story resonated with uh, me personally, as well as my you know, family and our personal story. And I thought it was a, a story worth sharing. One thing about the movie business is you can make a good living as a film in the film industry or as a film producer. It's not easy to make an amazing living. It's not easy to make tremendous amount. Of, you know, the number of people that make an extraordinary amount of money is not a very high number. But one thing you can do is you can create something that impacts people's lives. You can not only make a living and support yourself and support your family, but you can leave a lasting legacy that people talk about even 30 years later. Or we, to this day, get these letters constantly. My son, my daughter, she was this. She got into she saw the movie. She was inspired. It helped her get through this and that. It's really, 
I can't even begin to explain to you how rewarding and satisfying that is. And so we thought we got to make this movie. And if we get the thing right, we could have an impact. And Oh, yeah. You want to talk about lasting. I mean, whether it was the soundtrack, the, oh, that music was so... Was Jerry Goldsmith. Jerry Goldsmith, yeah. He said, uh, when he recorded the music, um, he actually let me conduct the orchestra just as like a, as a gift. I said, I love this music. It's so delicious. It's beautiful. He said, here, take this. He handed me the baton and then I conducted the orchestra. <laughs> so you sure I'm not screwing this up, are you? He said, no, no, you're doing just fine. He said it was adapted from an old 19th century Irish lilt. Oh, really? That is interesting. I never knew the backstory. I thought, oh, did he just pull it out of his head? I mean, because he did Jurassic Park, of course, and such amazing. Actually, no, Jurassic Park was John Williams, Williams. right? Yeah, John Williams. But they're, they're also brilliant because without music, movies are not as emotional. But, you know, you had this incredible production company and you succeeded. You ended up selling it to Hallmark, correct? How'd that come about? Well, I had this production company and then years later, so I became a film producer and the more I did it, the more I wanted to engage in the actual process of filmmaking and engaged in actually writing and directing and producing Mm -hmm. and produced a number of short films, one of which we won an Academy Award for one of these films. And then um, when the streaming world emerged in, in 2000 and five or six, uh, we formed a company and the idea was to disintermediate the complicated infrastructure of the industry where we formed a company that would just produce life affirming stories of inspiration and hope. And they were all short films. And we created a collection of 150 of these and we hired kids out of NYU and USC and we wrote and directed and produced them and then created a subscription service for people who who are interested in these kinds of things. And it turned out to be very much a uh, faith-based audience. People very Hallmark, for- very Hallmark, right? Exactly. So Hallmark ended up buying the company. Today they call it Hallmark Movies Now, and they've merged it with a lot of their existing films. And so um, that was the root of that. So we formed that in 2007 and sold it to them in 2012. And I actually stayed with Hallmark for five years. I love the company. It's quite a special quite a special company. We're not done yet. We'll be back in a moment. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And Listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash Clayman. Just go to Indeed.com slash Clayman right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash Clayman. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Well, here comes that, that sort of lightning bolt moment where you go from one industry 
to something so completely different that I don't even know how this would have come about. And, and this is what I find fascinating. You went into the health supplements business. First, where did the first step away from the industry go? And how did you look towards something like Chromadex? In the 1990s, uh, we had started an internet company while we were producing some films. We were making, I think, Collateral and Boondock Saints and a cable movie called Winchell about Walter Winchell. And uh, a friend of mine from school had started an internet company called Web TV, and I went on his board and invested in the company and learned about this burgeoning idea of e-commerce. So we we formed an e-commerce company that was uh, fairly significant. It, it built and managed the online stores for all the Hollywood studios and the cable channel. So if you wanted to buy a t-shirt from like South Park, it would switch over to our servers and our logistics operation. And we would fill that order. So I started becoming very interested and knowledgeable about e-commerce in the 1990s. But I, I, I happened to go to a uh, investor c- conference for our venture capital firm that was backing that business. And met an entrepreneur who was starting a stem cell company. And his stem cell company was studying something called telomeres. And telomeres are little fragments of protein on, the, on, the, on, on all cells that shrink every time the cell divides. And he had identified an enzyme that when uh, applied to the cell, every time the cell divided, the telomere would not shrink, therefore deeming the cell to be immortal. And uh, so I thought it was really cool that he was had a company that was developing science to stop aging. Uh, you know, at the time I was in my 30s and I said, I'd like to stay right here. Thanks. <laughs> OK, me too. Didn't quite work out that way. Yeah, it looks like you're doing pretty good. You must be taking true niagen. Okay, so get to it. Do not. So, so it's been since the 90s that I've been somewhat obsessed with the science of, uh, of aging and the actual state of the science and started with this research on telomeres and then it pivoted to something called sirtuins, which are these uh, longevity uh, genes that seem to be associated with low caloric uh, intake and, uh, and, and aging. But then it pivoted to something called nicotinamide adenine dinucleotide, NAD. And so the research worldwide from biochemists and people, researchers on longevity sort of landed on this NAD idea of that and there's an NAD depletion every, associated with virtually every condition that we think of when we think of aging. And there's scores and score hundreds of studies that validate that. And then there was this company in Irvine that had uh, licensed a large patent portfolio around a particular scientific discovery out of Dartmouth of an ingredient called nicotinamide riboside that when one takes orally, when you, when you ingest orally, it elevates NAD levels in all the cells of our body. And then there were the, all these studies coming out. Well, if that's true, would that be therapeutic for all these diseases or conditions that we associated with aging? And it turned out to be yes. Wow. So it was a small public company at a very small market cap, like 50 or $60 million. And I began to invest in that company and others that I know invested in that company. And eventually I went on the board of the company. And the, 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 the company pretty much was just like a, a, a research lab, an analytical testing service that happened to have this patent portfolio. And the idea was, well, well, this could be the biggest ingredient of all time. I mean, if people take this thing, they're going to age better. It's going to impact the way the body metabolically ages. It works. 
So we decided to change the company to be more of a consumer-facing e-commerce-based operation rather than a science lab, a research lab. And I was the only one on the board that had e-commerce experience, storytelling experience, consumer experience, and the timing was right. So I joined the company as an executive and have been there now for inside the company for about four years, which is when we launched the brand. We call it True Niagen, and it's having a really positive impact and in, in, in many ways even deeper than something like a, a Rudy or, or the short film company, if you will. Well, it's, it's real life, obviously. It's something that involves people's health. Um, these are not easy businesses. You've got, I'm sure, all kinds of regulation and regulators breathing down your neck, right? Right. So you're also now in charge of this company where there's a publicly traded stock, so you have investors to answer to, I'm sure. Mm-hmm. Does, that, does that put an a pressure on you. I always thought about how publicly traded CEOs must feel at night if there's a bad day in the stock or a great day. And and you almost live and die each day by, because I interview these guys all the time. And it's hard for them to relax because on any given day, they feel the responsibility and the weight of shareholders who believe in them. Is that a tough thing to have absorbed and learned to carry? It is a responsibility. It's not one that I don't enjoy. You know, <laughs> I, I, I like it. You know, I, I compare it in a way to being a, a dad. Uh, you know, you, you never stop being a dad. Whatever it is they're doing, wherever they are, you know, you know that's your primary responsibility. You're tuned into it. You never really, or at least I never really disconnect from it. And I feel somewhat the same about the company. I am very aware of what's going on at all times in all aspects of the company. I feel responsible for it, but it's not one that I don't enjoy. I like it. So it's grown pretty exponentially, has it not? It's done pretty well. We launched it in March of 2017. And last quarter, we did about just under 18 million. So per quarter. So that's decent growth, but we think that even more significant growth is, is coming. As more having, coming. having jumped to a totally new business and industry and sector, do you look at movies differently when you see them now? When you, Well, we haven't been in movie theaters for so long because of the coronavirus crisis, but when you look at movies, is it more enjoyable now to just sit back and relax and, and kind of suck in the story? I never stopped loving watching movies. I know so much about the process, though, that I think that I'm a more challenging critic. I do love to watch everything. I just completed the first season of this Icelandic TV show called Trapped. It's fantastic. Trapped. It's really, really amazing. Some of these Norwegian television shows, these murder mystery shows, they have great precision and attention to detail. The writing is good. The narrative is complex. The great sets, costumes. They're very, very, very good. And I recommend them. It's one of the great things about the pandemic is that we have an opportunity through streaming to be exposed to these global movies and television series and things. But I understand very, very well what's behind filmmaking. So I like good filmmaking. I I very much appreciate when somebody is an artist and attention to detail. Do you have a favorite movie? Well, yeah, Uh, I have one movie that I've seen over 50 times. (laughs) Did you ever see 
from 1960, the movie Sweet Smell of Success with Burt Lancaster and Tony No, Curtis, I didn't. Because you would like it as a journalist. It was uh, it inspired me to produce the movie Winchell at HBO many years ago. It's loosely based on the life of Walter Winchell. It's written Gossip by... columnist. Yeah, it's a gossip columnist played by Burt Lancaster who's trying to be Walter Winchell at a time before Entertainment Tonight and when a, when, a, when a particular columnist could make or break a career. And it's Manhattan late at night of, 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 a, of a press agent trying to manipulate a columnist. And it's all this kind of um, um, dialogue. It's, if you love great movie dialogue, this is about as good as you can get. You know, my mom is 90 now. And I went home to see her. She was a formerly trained theater actress at the from the Royal Academy of Dramatic Art in London, Shakespeare. Oh, and I grew up getting yelled at in iambic pentameter. And, you know, it was never you kids are unappreciative. It was how sharper than a serpent's tooth it is to have a child. <laughs> you know, okay, mom, King Lear, I get it. I'm four years old. Relax. But I walked into her bedroom. This was last month. And she was watching... All about Eve, which I had never seen, oh. Betty Davis. And I sat down and I watched that movie, and everyone listening has got it is the most brilliant script. Every line, I was sitting there, I grabbed a pen and I was writing things down, but it also has this sort of gossip columnist, uh, Broadway show critic kind of thing who could make or break careers. But those films from that era were absolutely stunning in their quality. I mean, very much about literature and acting. Yes. And over the years, the art form has evolved and, and emerged more. It's more visual. It's more, you know, what we, what we're able to do with action scenes and visual effects is extraordinary what they were doing back in the fifties and sixties is so primitive. And what we do now is if you can imagine it, we can do it. So it's become dominant in filmmaking, but back then it was much, the art form was much more about the literature. And if you are appreciative of that kind of thing, then especially, you know, films from that era are the best. Well, is, is there a movie in our era that you would believe had, had really kind of, hit the brass ring on, on that particular level from going back in time. And I'm thinking the constant gardener, which is not my type of film, but it sort of is because I love death and destruction and murder. So <laughs> I am a Godzilla girl, but um, you know, I love thrillers. And to me that had both that had the literature, the quality acting. Chris the probably 10 plus years old already at this point. Yeah, I know. I know. You know, in my opinion, over the, over the last five years, look, uh, there's so many brilliant screenwriters and, and so many interesting films that are still being made. But it's these limited TV series where you see really extra, exceptional writing right now, where there's a little oh, bit Cobra less. Kai, I mean, come on. It's <laughs> awesome. <laughs> Do you ever think about going back? You know, I don't I don't. You know, one thing you can tell is I've generally pursued what I've been passionate about. So if I was inspired to tell a story, I would certainly not avoid making a film about it. But I don't really have any passion to do that presently. It's it's not an inspiration for me. So when you think about Chromadex and the, your current passion, 
Where do you see this going? Well, it's an interest, it's a fascinating industry, and it's fascinating to compare it to other industries. It has in common people. So wherever you have people, you have greed and you have all the characteristics of human being, good and bad. And in this particular industry, it's interesting because the the currency of the industry is data. The currency in the movie business is in the movie business is taste, mm-hmm. hipness, trends this kind of thing. The the coolest person wins. The most manipulative, coolest person gets what they want. But in this industry, it's much more, what does the data say? Meritocracy in a way, you know, substance. More of a meritocracy. But you do see people manipulating the data or falsifying the data. It's interesting, the games that people play in order to make money or get power or get influence. you're, You're still seeing the characteristics of humanity at play here. And Unfortunately, until the robots and machines completely take over, its business is still going to be about people. And where you have people, you have problems. And we see a lot of that here in the dietary supplement space. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, in fact, it's interesting. Most dietary supplement companies are not really science companies. I understand what you're saying. A disappointing fact, but it's mm-hmm. true. Well, there's a lot of a lot of promises, a lot of fraud, outright difficult uh, issues that can't be dug up so easily, and then you realize it's just it's just gone with the wind. It's just in the ether. It's nothing. So we believe that we have a molecule here called nicotinamide riboside. We call it niagen. That could be the most important molecule to have emerged in the dietary supplement business, more important than something like omega-3 or CoQ10 or even vitamin C or D, because we understand mechanistically exactly what it does when you take it. You take niagen, and within a couple of hours, it's not something you pee out. It penetrates the cell. And it elevates this thing called NAD, nicotinamide adenine dinucleotide. And when you have elevated NAD levels, two really exciting things happen. One is you have increased PARP, P-A-R-P activity. And that's important. PARP enzymes are enzymes inside the cell that are like an intracell immune system. They are the enzymes that fight off disease and infection and gene mutations and oxidative stress. So you elevate the number and effectiveness of PARP just by elevating NAD. And the other thing it does is it elevates the number and effectiveness of organelles called mitochondria, which are fascinating stuff, but you could do a movie out of mitochondria. Mitochondria are these organelles that are responsible for for converting nutrients and oxygen, that food you eat, the air you breathe into energy. Correct. It's great biology. For smart people like you. The rest of us took it in ninth or tenth grade, but but Liz <laughs> took it in eighth grade. But but uh, <clears throat> but these mitochondria are fascinating uh, little things, you know. Like they actually have their own separate DNA. Well, I watch forensic files, and when they don't have a large enough sample, they will take the mitochondria of what they have and they'll grow it so that they get a bigger sample. But I digress. Uh-huh. That's pretty good, though. I like murder. It's interesting, your source of information. <laughs> <laughs> well, my dad was a doctor, too, but unfortunately, none of us became doctors. Dad but was I'm... a doctor. Your mom was an actress with the Royal Academy. Yeah. 
Yeah. Very sophisticated. What can I say? I felt very lucky because I had both the science and the art in the family. So it was very much a, a Renaissance dinner table. You know, my dad would be saying things to people on the phone like, Mr. Nussbaum, I saved your kidney stones. If you want to swing by and get them, I'm still here. And then, of course, my mom was, as I said, yelling at us in Shakespeare. Um, what an honor to hear your story. I feel like you're one of these people who has lived many lives and will live many more to come, which to me has always been a goal for myself. I don't want it to just end here as business news anchor, although, you know, I started as a local news anchor and reporter. So I did cover the drug busts and explosions, murders, whale carcasses off the coast of Rhode Island. But there are so many different lives I think we all should live because life is just too short not to. And you're the embodiment of that. Well, thank you for saying that. I appreciate that. It's very kind of you. I look forward to watching Chromadex. And um, you got to come on my show, The Claim and Countdown, when you guys have your earnings reports or something, because I want to tell this story. I like this. Thank you. It'd be my pleasure. Thank you so much for joining us on Everyone Talks to Liz, Rob. Um, 50 times is what you you watched your favorite movie. I've seen Rudy 70, probably. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm excluding films that I worked on, because then you see them too many times. But Oh, yeah, darling, the sides. I get it. <laughs> Um, or the rushes, the rushes. See, I got my terminology. Just Not give me that and I'll figure it out. Rob Freed of Chromadex and, of course, Hollywood producer extraordinaire. Thank you so much for sharing that story. And to all of you out there, when, when I say live your best life, maybe it should be live your best lives like Rob has. What a, what a great example he sets for all of us. And um I'm so thrilled that you all tuned in once again and make sure, as always, tune in Monday through Friday, 3 p.m. Eastern, The Claim and Countdown. Hello. I'm there every day. I need I need you guys to join. I'm giving you your invitation. All right. I'll see you guys next time. Pull up a chair and join me, Rachel Campos Duffy. And me, former U.S. Congressman Sean Duffy, as we share our perspective on the discussions happening at kitchen tables across America. Download from the kitchen table, the Duffy's at foxnewspodcasts.com or wherever you download podcasts.